Hello and welcome to The Scrum, a podcast about politics and political media from Beacon Hill to the Beltway. I'm Adam Riley. The plan for this mini Scrum was to look at all the weird ways the presidential race has intersected with New England over the past week or so, from Elizabeth Warren's so-called snub of Hillary Clinton, hope you heard the air quotes around that word, to Marty Walsh's warm embrace of Hillary Clinton, to New Hampshire union leader, publisher, and one-time Scrum guest Joe McQuaid's endorsement of Chris Christie. But then, a married couple opened fire on a holiday party in San Bernardino, California. At least 14 people were killed before the couple was shot and killed by police. Another day, another mass shooting in America. So, before we talk about anything else, we're going to talk about the politics of gun control in the United States. I'm joined by WGBHnews.org senior editor Peter Kadzis and WGBH analyst David Bernstein. David and Peter, thanks to both of you for being here. Good. I wish we were talking about something else, but... Yeah, it's, uh, it's, once again, it's a topic you can't seem to stay away from this year. So I am curious about whether you two think that in this particular case, the question of motive matters. My sense is that early on, and you know, Twitter's an incredibly imprecise and unreliable metric for gauging how the public's reacting to something. But when I was checking out Twitter, there seemed to be a, a set of reactions prior to learning the identity of the alleged assailants, uh, which was a little bit different than the reactions that emerged once it came out that apparently uh, they have a Muslim background and that this may fall under the heading of what we've traditionally called terrorism, although that term also right now seems to be kind of uh, overly elastic and up for debate. Did you guys pick up on that shift that I'm talking about? Did reactions change or am I getting that wrong? No, I think uh, I'll tell you from what I saw on social media, I was somewhat chagrined to see mainly on Facebook a number of people saying, oh, yeah, we're going to find out it's another, you know, angry, impotent white man and this or that. And even before we found out the, you know, the identity issue, I thought this, folks, folks, this isn't the way to look at it. I mean, in a way, the question is, you know, can um, an American-born Muslim go postal is is really what what this is. I think this is, we're going to find it's a little more complicated. My guess, and that's in capital letters, italicized, underlined guess, is that we're going to have a variation, not a carbon copy, a variation of the Zanaev scenario where there's going to be some self-radicalization, some outside elements, but it, it's pretty disturbing. David Bernstein, does that sound right to you? Well, yeah, and I think that, uh, that when you take the, the two recent uh, shooting incidents that caught everyone's attention, this one and before that, uh, the one at the abortion clinic uh, in Colorado, uh, the, the roles were all mixed up. You know, normally you do get in these mass shootings this immediate uh, outpouring, like, uh, like Adam was talking about, of everyone going to their corners on the gun issue and yeah. making it all about that. And then, you know, running, jumping in with, um, with no, it's a mental health issue. No, it's this, you know, everyone's just sort of jumping into their sort of assigned roles that they do for all of these mass shootings. And then everything gets complicated by, in these two cases particularly, I think, uh, the fact that they seem to be falling in between uh, readily identified uh, scenarios. Let, that, me, you know, let me ask you, just to interrupt for a second, sorry, I... I know what you're talking about, I think, exactly when it comes to the San Bernardino shootings. 
How do you mean? Uh, how do you mean that in the context of Colorado? How do you see that as falling between the the kind of reliable poles that people can go to or corners that people can go to? Well, because uh, instead of jumping immediately to the gun control issue, a lot of people were jumping immediately to the abortion issue, gotcha. and uh, and so you had a lot of people immediately pinning it on that, uh, and then people on the other side saying, no, you can't jump to conclusions about why why he's doing it, what, what's going on. And it turns out we still don't really know. It seems like that's part of the equation, at least, is that he was targeting the abortion clinic, uh, uh, you know, particularly for as a political statement. But there may have been a lot more to it than that. It, 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 I, I think it's not going to fall, like Peter was saying about San Bernardino, I, I don't think it's going to fall in the end very cleanly into a this is exactly why he did and what he did and, yeah. and how he did it. Yeah, and, and I think that actually actually many of the incidents are that way. We just don't pay attention long enough to get past that initial, uh, you know, our initial decision about where it falls in our sense of how these things work. Yeah, and David, let me build off the foundation you've laid here. There was a lot of confusion, um, honest confusion, about the Zarnayevs. But once the prosecution begins, the very act of prosecuting someone, charging them and all, is to, to, to force vertical cylinders on the case and to, mm. to try to make a logical argument, which a prosecutor has to do, to create, if you will, a dreaded word, a narrative out of a pretty messy situation. Well, and that's, I would say that that might be a rare example of the logic of the courtroom corresponding with the natural tendencies of the human mind. Because I think even though we all know from firsthand experience that humans are complex beings and that we act for a, a hugely uh, complex and occasionally contradictory array of motivations, um, we still, when, when someone does something like, you know, what the shooters did in San Bernardino, we want to reduce it to this is the thing that made them do that. And, you know, I feel like there's that desire, regardless of where you're coming from, which gets back to what you were saying, David, about people retreating to their corners and just going with their favorite explanation. And, and I think that, that that has policy implications because I think it's a, it, we don't like to talk much, it seems, about motive when we move into the policy and political discussions because we only have sort of these very specific uh, uh, things to talk about policy-wise. You know, it, there's sort of the, oh, we should be passing this bill that has the background check, loop, you know, gun show loophole, you know, or we shouldn't be doing that, or we should be adding money for mental health treatment, or we shouldn't. And and, and when you sort of back up and say, well, maybe there's a, a combination of things that are going to work or help with some of these and not with others, and Virginia Tech falls kind of this way and this one, it, it becomes very, uh, I, I'm not really sure what role motive plays, but it seems like it has to in some way. I mean, certainly we, we, we immediately put everything into a different policy category if we think of it as terrorism. Yeah, but listen. I think it's more complicated than that. Peter Kansas. I, I think that we're coming off of a um, unusually, perhaps uniquely peaceful period, you know, from, say, 1952, 1950 to you know, 1960, 10, you know, leave the leave it to beaver years. And 
most of history has been rotten and violent. And I'm not sure that what, what we're in now is very different from what I certainly grew up with. Um, well, not even just 1950 to 1960. I mean, I remember, um, you know, like David, I, I'd say I sort of came of age at the end of the Cold War and the utopian Francis Fukuyama end of history school of thought. Uh, I think people thought maybe we we're going back to that, to those Beaver Cleaver years. Yeah. Well, and also re- remember that, that after the Beaver Cleaver generation, that, you know, that time period, you had the, the scary city, scary urban notion of what violence was, you know, and that, that Richard Nixon and the Republicans, uh, you know, really played up in a very big way that, that really equated danger with black people in the city, you know, doing a certain kind of crime that you had to be afraid of. And I think that, you know, held a narrative for a long time, especially through the, you know, the, the drug epidemic uh, in the inner cities and so forth. And now I think that that narrative is falling apart as we are becoming a little bit more, you know, desegregated in our general lives and in the cities. And also as things like the drug problem, you know, the opioid problem is, is no longer thought of uh, as a racial, racially divided thing, the way that, that cocaine was rightly or wrongly back in those days. You know, I, I, I think that something, something new is replacing those fears, and it's a combination of terrorism and domestic terrorism or, you know, uh, gun use or whatever it might be. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a pretty clear division between international terrorism and domestic terrorism. Domestic terrorism has long been at large in America. You know, in uh, in the Jim Crow days, domestic terrorism was waged, you know, daily, weekly, monthly, annually against black Americans, lynchings, beatings. Um, d- domestic terrorism is American as apple pie. International terrorism waxes and wanes, and there have been periods of it internationally, and we happen to be in one now. You know, the, the thing that drives me crazy is the return to all this discussion about gun control. And before some of our listeners go crazy and, like, want to jump out of the window, I'm all in favor of gun control. It's great. Go ahead. Go crazy. Regulate it all. This isn't about gun control. You, you know, as Amanda, our producer, pointed out, you know, Massachusetts has um, – is it the, the safest state in terms of gun? The fourth safest state. California, however, has the best laws. You know, you see how well the laws work. France had excellent gun control laws. Tell that to the Parisians. This is not about laws. It pains me to do that. Frankly, I would like to see all handguns disappear in only hunting weapons you know, that's my gun control plan. Not, not to bug but it us, ain't going to happen. Not to bog us down too much, and I don't think I have the grasp on this issue that David does, but isn't it about rates of gun ownership in the U.S.? And isn't that why when you look at the number of mass shooting events that we have here and compare them to similar events around the world, um, you see numbers that are totally out of whack? Yeah, you see it out of whack, but most people with guns don't go around shooting other people. Yeah, um, you know, it, I, I, I uh, as you, you guys know, I've, I've written a lot on gun topics over the years, and, uh, and and it's such a frustrating topic because there are two things that are going to be true in America for as long as any of us are, are going to be alive. One of them is that there are going to be 
millions upon millions, hundreds of millions of guns in private ownership hands in America. That's, you know, we're not taking all the guns away. Like, some of us may want to see all the handguns taken away. It's not going to happen. Not in our lifetime. And the second thing is, they're not going to be, the gun ownership is not going to be completely free of regulation. It's not going to happen. The idea of a slippery slope one way or another, which tends to, to bog down the argument, is just, that's not where the real argument is. The real argument is really more like, uh, you know, uh, regulating automobiles. It's complicated. It's uh, it's something for bureaucrats really to work out. Unfortunately, we don't let them work it out in in the case of gun control. We have to have these crazy you know debates that really don't make a whole lot of sense. Well, let me just ask you guys before we move on to uh, state politics. Do you think that given the way the Colorado shooting, David, as you pointed out, and the San Bernardino shooting, uh, I should say shootings given the multiple victims, have you know, destabilized people's traditional understandings of what it is that leads to events like this and highlighted the the ambiguity behind these events. Do you think that that might lead to some sort of unexpected bipartisan collaboration? I feel like mocking myself as I say the word, but could that... Could, well, you should. Could that lead to some <laughs> sort of creative policymaking when it comes to gun control uh in Washington, D.C., that brings right and left together? And again, I want to mock myself. What do you think? I, I would say no. No. Sadly, no. David? I, I think it's very unlikely, and I think that, that to the extent that it would happen, it would be that um, that if the political pressure is there, uh, that there could be a compromise in the sense of finding the most ineffective, meaningless types of gun control that they could pass, uh, you know, getting a majority and, and getting it passed through the Congress. So uh, I think it's possible that a set of things could pass, but that it would be the least effective possible. Look, Wall Street ruins more lives than guns do. Um, you know, they almost crash the world economy. And, you know, we got a relatively feeble form of financial control. The, the NRA is just the world's strongest pro-business group. I mean, it's it's you've got gun manufacturers who get their customers to pay for allowing them to keep. It, right, it's so, just too sick. So given what you guys have said, just for the record, final question on this. If we now see the president and Congress get together on, say, uh, legislation that would keep people who are on the government's terrorist watch list from legally purchasing handguns. Good move. <laughs> Good move. Peter, David, sure. what do you think? Yeah. No, it's, uh, that's, uh, uh, that would be on, my, on what I was referring to before as the most meaningless thing possible. It, there's not a really tenable way to do it because the watch list is so bad. Yeah. That, um, you know, remember, Ted Kennedy was on the watch list that's at one point. That's the first thing you know? I thought of, yeah. So, All right, well, let's, anyway. let's move on to less somber topics just for a few minutes and talk about Massachusetts's emergence in the presidential race. Emergence is probably too strong especially since I got to include New Hampshire in there. But let's talk about how the presidential race came home just over the past week or thereabouts. And let's start with Elizabeth Warren's shocking snub, almost the equivalent of slapping her in the face with her glove of Hillary Rodham Clinton. All right, Peter, you wrote about this. Uh, defend Elizabeth Warren's snub of the former first lady. Well, it's and not, it doesn't of need to. Well, first of all, it's easy to defend Hillary double-crossed 
um, Elizabeth Warren in terms of the consumer financial consumer protection agency. Hillary is a senator that said she'd support it, then she didn't. So you know what goes around comes around, and Elizabeth Warren you know smacked her with gloves, wet towels, maybe wet gloves would be the way. And this is by not joining how many other refreshing 13, thirteen senators. But it, it, again, it, at the risk of quoting myself, which I love to do, um, Elizabeth Warren's political royalty royalty doesn't travel in packs. You know Elizabeth. Warren has replaced Ted Kennedy as, you know, Massachusetts, you know, high-profile politician. Ted always danced uh, somewhat awkwardly to the tune of his own piper. Elizabeth Warren does it a little better. Um, but there's a bigger issue here, too. The press blows this all out of proportion. I mean, we should be ashamed of ourselves. The uh, uh, the press treats Elizabeth Warren like Ebola. Whether Whatever she does, Elizabeth Warren, whoa, it's Elizabeth Warren. You, you know, they could explain, same with Hillary Clinton. The, the fact of the matter is it's like, oh, my God, Elizabeth Warren didn't endorse Hillary Clinton. They knew Don right well why she didn't. So, David, in light of what Peter just said, my natural question for you is, does this signal a nascent Elizabeth Warren presidential run? Oh, Adam, you should be. Now, this if it, if it wouldn't be politically incorrect, I'd say you should be shot. <laughs> I, uh, I, will, I will say this. Uh, first of all, uh, Peter's completely right. I, I agreed with everything he wrote uh, in his piece on the, on the website. Uh, the other day. So That's I WGBHnews.org. Yes. Uh, so I completely agree with all that. I would also add to that that Hillary Clinton would be an idiot to have included Elizabeth Warren in that event uh, with the other uh, Democratic women senators, even if Elizabeth Warren was willing to do it, because Elizabeth Warren is royalty, and you want to highlight her uh, uh, endorsement when it comes as something special and get a whole big uh, boost among the progressives who who worship at the feet of Elizabeth Warren and, and get a, a big set of donations. By the way, uh, it is no uh, a small thing, just as an aside, uh, a much more important piece of news uh, on the political national scene that came out this week uh, is that Elizabeth Warren's chief of staff, uh, Minnie Myers, uh, is leaving that office to head up the super PAC that will be associated with the Democratic Senate campaign nationally mm. to, to run ads in support of Democratic Senate candidates all over the country. That is no small thing that Elizabeth Warren's chief of staff is the one heading over to head that up. That's a very big deal. But listen, when Elizabeth Warren, and I think we can say when she does endorse Hillary Clinton, it'll help... Uh, soothe the Bernie Sanders supporters who are disappointed if Bernie doesn't make it. So my hunch is that there's not nearly as much to say about Marty Walsh's endorsement of Hillary Clinton uh, last weekend. I mean... Well, you hit the nail right in the head in your piece on WGBHnews.org backslash scrum. When Adam, you know, basically wrote that this does this does Mayor Marty Walsh more good than it does uh, Hillary Clinton. It was the biggest Marty Walsh love fest I've seen in quite some time. I was at John Connolly headquarters on election night, so maybe that would uh, compare with it. But David, what did you think of that? I am going to uh, to repeat a line that I've I've used many times since uh, it was one of the first lines I think that that I got uh, a 
a particularly good notice uh, from my then editor Peter Cadiz when I first was uh, was working at the Boston Phoenix. I think one of the first lines I wrote that he ever particularly liked was when I slipped in somewhere that Boston is the ATM on the road to New Hampshire. Yes. <laughs> 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 and and that's all I really have to say about that whole event. That's that's exactly what Hillary was in town for. Uh, Marty made the most of it, and uh, it, she was here to get money. So, Peter, you had some thoughts about how the union-focused love fest at that Marty Walsh Clinton endorsement uh, might connect or not quite connect with Bernie Sanders waiting into the big fight over this pipeline that is uh, slated to probably come to Massachusetts. Kinder, Kinder Morgan. Morgan pipeline. Yeah. Two things. One. Hillary Clinton, you know, um, more or less nullified her her uh, negotiating position when she was Secretary of State on the big Pacific trade deal. That went to unions big time. And that qualifies as a flip-flop, right? Not an evolution, but a flip-flop? Oh, flip-flop's too weak a word. But a- anyway, yeah, but she did what was necessary. You know, as, as they say in The Godfather, it's only business. Um she played to, you know, the unions big time. Also, she played to people who want to see us jumpstart the economy with um, uh, infrastructure. Uh, the unions love that. But what's really interesting is Bernie Sanders um, came out against the Kinder, Kinder Morgan, Morgan pipeline. Not in and of itself surprising, but you can see in that, you know, Saturday night, Bernie Sanders is playing to the green wing of the body. And on Sunday afternoon, Hillary Clinton is playing to the hot hat side of the party. I've got to tell you, you know, they're, they're different wings of the party. They're not incompatible. But it's it's a much healthier situation than the Republicans face. You know, where the Republicans, it's just, you know, like a Hieronymus Bosch painting where it's just chaos <laughs> everywhere. But, um, you know, so so you see... You know, you see two really clear strains here. And one thing that I like about it is they're different, but it's rational. It's things people can understand, you know. Um, It's certainly more grown up than anything Donald Trump has said recently. It's a great example of the symbiosis between uh, New Hampshire and the, you know, New Hampshire's internal politics and presidential politics and how things can rise from the internal politics to the, the, the presidential politics, as it did in this case, See, I love and then, the... well, and then in turn affect the the internal politics because all of a sudden, since Bernie Sanders said that over the weekend, there's suddenly been this this uh, huge interest in where all the local big politicians stand. And Maggie yeah. Hassan is against is, is out against yeah. the, the pipeline. Uh, has Kelly Scott Aon, Brown has uh, Scott Brown weighed in on the pipeline? I, I'm not sure if Scott Brown has weighed in. He's not, okay. As far as I know, he's not running for anything at the moment. Uh, but, but Hassan and, and Ayat, who will be running against each other for that Senate seat, uh, both came out on the same side. Um, and, uh, and also Frank Junta, a Republican, uh, also came out against the, the pipeline. So uh, it really picked up a lot of steam politically. Uh, it picked up enough steam internally to be something for the national uh, presidential candidates to talk about, and that gave it even more steam internally for everyone to have to answer to uh, in the state. Yeah, see, I love the name Kinder Morgan. Every time I hear it, I don't think of a pipeline. It reminds me of, like, a line of executive clothes that women in their 30s and 40s would look good in. Like, yes, what are you getting your wife for Christmas? I'm getting her a Kinder Morgan suit. It's a little expensive, but she'll look great in it. You know what it reminds me of uh, is uh, Yucca Mountain. In, in Nevada, which huh. is, you know, sounds like a, a, you know, 
Uh, do you support Yucca Mountain? And you would think, oh, yes, of course. It sounds like a, you know, some sort of environmentalist thing. But you have to know, yeah. going into that state, that, that that's just a code for supporting the storage of nuclear waste in the state, and that you have to immediately come out as vehemently against it, regardless of your politics, uh, if you want to have any, any hope. And that's so, what this Kinder Morgan pipeline is up there now, because uh, there's so much local, on-the-ground resistance. So, guys, I want to flash back to a name you mentioned just a moment ago, uh, very fortuitously, David. Is it, it, that's how you say it, it's Junta? I always thought it was Ginta. Frank Ginta? Ginta Junta? Ginta? Uh, we'll have to get, we'll have to get Frank. some... Uh, that guy, I've written about him enough. That New that. Hampshire politician whose last name is spelled G-U-I-N-T-A, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, he was famously labeled a damned liar in the tersus yes. editorial that I've ever seen in my life. It was published in the Manchester Union Leader, and I believe— uh, I, I believe I believe it was published on the front page. Front page <laughs> picture, and that was the entire editorial. Frank Ginta, however damned, you say it, is a damned liar. liar. Uh, yeah. Credit to Joe McQuaid, the publisher of the Union Leader and former guest on the Scrum, for uh, for penning that uh, punchy line. The Union Leader has just gone and endorsed Chris Christie for president, and I'm wondering if you two think this is a game changer in New Hampshire. I think it could be. I I have to say that among friends and relatives, m- most of my friends and relatives, and I have a number of them in New Hampshire, are Republicans. And um, the most interest has long been in Cruz or uh, Chris Christie. Um, And so I wasn't surprised. Um, I think this could make a big difference. He's been doing a heck of a job, to uh, paraphrase George Bush. He's been doing a heck of a job of, you know, pressing the flesh and going to community meetings and eating pancakes and doing all those things you do to win the votes there. But Was that it, a backhanded weight joke that you just made? Uh, no, well, I, I one time at one of the diners up there, I astounded the diner. This is back when I worked on Fox News. Cosmo and VB will bear this out. I ate, you know, the, the, the huge crisp, breakfast platter that if you don't finish it, they cut your necktie off. He's holding his hands about three feet apart right now. as he And the trick is to go slowly. Don't rush it. But anyway, um, McQuaid is is a shop cookie, and his endorsement helps define New Hampshire. This isn't about what the rest of the country is going to do. The New Hampshire primary is a local event. You know, there's a sacredness to it. And um, I think... As far as McQuaid is concerned, Christie is the best of the Republicans from a New, uh, a Repub- from a New Hampshire Republican point of view. So, David, do you think if Peter's right about that, is this uh, Joe McQuaid trying to save the New Hampshire GOP from itself, given that Donald Trump has had a fat lead there for as long as I can remember? Yeah, well, Joe McQuaid definitely feels like he plays an important role, uh, which he does uh, in, the, in the process. Not that, that who he... Uh, who he pushes. And by the way, it's important to remember, when Joe McQuaid endorses, it's not a, a, a one-time, here's our endorsement. It means over the next several months, I'm going to be using my newspaper to push this candidate and attack the others. And that's what he does to a large extent. So uh, It's gloriously it's very, unfair. That's why I love it. <laughs> it's, he's very upfront about it. He's a really good guy. You know, I I like a lot of the people there at the union leader, and they're sort of unabashed about, well, that's part of what we do, you know. Um, but I, I as, as, 
as you guys know, I like to reduce everything to fun, you know, analogies. And one that I've used many, many times about the early primaries, presidential primaries, is that for most people who end up voting in these primaries, it, this stage of it is a lot like going shopping for a, a home appliance of some kind, you know, a refrigerator or a dishwasher, where it, you walk in and there's like 10 or 12 of them, and they all look pretty much the same. They all seem to do what you want them to do. And, and sometimes there's one that stands out, you know, the new model that's completely different, and that's Donald Trump this year. And you've got, you know, about a quarter of them are really fascinated by the new model and are deciding to go that way. So Trump is like the front-loading wash machine when that first came over from Europe? Right, 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 exactly. You know, or the, you know, if it's the first, you know, side-by-side refrigerator freezer that ever came out or whatever, you know, but the other... Side-by-each. The the other 75%, I I said this about Howard Dean, uh, you know, when he was leading uh, back then, you know, he was the anti-Iraq war not a senator or congressman, you know, small town, you know, the whole thing. So, yeah, 25% had decided to go with him, but 75% wanted something else, you know. The problem is that it's very hard to distinguish among the various something else's because they're all pretty similar. And what you need when you're in that store is you need that salesperson to come up, ask you a couple questions, and then say, oh, well, you know, for families like yours, these are our two best sellers. And the difference between them is... Yeah, the, the difference between them is this one has the third crisper and this one has the adjustable shelf. You know, and then you can make your decision, right? You're out of there with your refrigerator in 10 minutes, but right? He, he has why so, Ma- here's why McQuaid is a genius. He, he, he basically gets a circulation boost. He runs his own circulation campaign with the endorsement, and he gets to pretend it's public service. I mean, well, th- that well, is and, genius. And is because, because he's the salesman who just walked up to Republican primary voters and said, hey, you know, out of these ten, you know that you were that all look pretty much the same. I think you should buy the Chris Christie one, and now they're all going to give Chris Christie a look because of that. All right, with those pearls of wisdom, it's going to do it for this week's Scrum. As always, if you like our podcast, you can find us online at iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and at wgbhnews.org/scrum. If you really, really like us, please think about rating us on iTunes. It actually makes it easier for people to find us. And if you want to tell me or Peter Kadzis or David Bernstein that we're full of it and got something completely wrong, feel free to tweet at us. I'm at Riley Adam. Uh, Peter, you're at Kadzis. And David, at D. Bernstein. Is that right? Yes. All right. David and Peter, thank you again. The pleasure was mine. Thank you. This is where you say the pleasure was actually Uh, Pleasure. Yeah, we'll do it next time. And thanks also to our producer, Amanda McGowan. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.